Audio Entertainment is brought to you by the kind folks at Tyrell Corporation, reminding you that civil registration isn't just common sense, it's the law. Welcome to Shoal of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm joined by co-hosts... Patrick. Dan. And today we're here to discuss Denis Villeneuve. This is our part two of our two-parter on Denis Villeneuve and Blade Runner 2049. And we've talked about a lot of his films before, and we felt like we wanted to devote an entire episode to 2049, why he was chosen, how he was chosen, trepidation... All sorts of things because there was a lot of it in the lead up we might have been familiar with who he was by the time 2049 came out um, but we were all essentially scrambling to watch his films before and it was still sort of a crapshoot so we felt like we really wanted to dig in a little bit deeper and discuss this man this director in light of this very storied ip and essentially of course the original film which is very near and dear to our hearts and a perfect thing and you have this new director with a very different and specific set of aesthetics coming in to direct a film set in this universe so we've discussed before where we were our first viewings and maybe we'll get into that eventually again but i'm just curious for you guys what was the last film you saw i mean the answer might obviously be arrival but it could not be was arrival the last film you saw before in terms of a Denis film before 2049. I mean, like I've said before, for me, it was the only Denis film that I'd seen. Maybe I saw Scario, but I just like, I had no idea it was Denis. I'm pretty sure I went from Arrival forward and then back. So I had seen Arrival when it came out, which was recently before this. Um, And then even it won an Oscar, I think, didn't it? Did Arrival win any Oscars? It was nominated. I think it might have won one okay. for maybe best effects. I can't remember. Oh, it's sound design. Is it sound design? Oh, yeah, Patrick's right. I feel like they got two Oscars, maybe sound design and original screenplay. No, I don't remember what the second one was. I love how this is like the easiest thing to look up and like I'm, I'm fucking fixing my microphone. And I'm like, we can I know, find this I'm out. How many, like how many Oscars, idiot, like, how many Oscars <laughs> did Arrival win? Oh, I good. We get to cut all this bullshit. It definitely won sound design. I'm definitely an idiot. Uh, it won. Sorry, sound editing did not win sound design, but it in was nominated fa- for best picture, face. best cinematography, best adapted screenplay, best director, best film editing, best sound mixing, and best production design. But it only won sound editing, and the production designer was the same person who designed Prisoners. Patrick said it best. <laughs> um, Right. So yes, for me, it was arrival. It would also be arrival for me as well. I mean, I, I did go and see, I had seen Sicario. I had seen Prisoners. I think I'd seen Enemy too, because I was like everyone else dying to get my hands on and see glimpses of 2049 and other films, um, hoping to see something. I think that would say, oh, this might help me. This might how, this might be how 2049 might look. Enemy was close to that, to be honest with you. The aesthetics of Enemy, the the pace of enemy it just feels more connected to even the elements of brutalism that you see in enemy 
you see in 2049. Um, they're closely related in terms of aesthetic choices. But uh, I, I, even still, for me, I was like, I don't know. Like, you just don't... With Blade Runner and the sequel, you're just like, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to... There's no way. Um, I went in there thinking there's just no way. As amazing as this guy is as, as a director, and I loved his films, I just... I was like, man... This is can go wrong so easy. And I was waiting and I was waiting and it never did. Patrick, in three sentences or less, could you remind the audience what brutalism is? Because I feel like <laughs> I still struggle. Between brutalist and brutalism, right? Brutalist right, and brutalism. Right. Yeah, I think you mean, you mean a brutal aesthetic, right? Like it's, it's a brutal aesthetic as opposed to well, lots of, a brutalism. Well, I also mean like a lot of cement structures there's definitely yeah there's definitely like some brutalist architecture in it yeah for sure but yeah there's, well, there's also brutal subject matter too i mean yeah it's a little complicated yeah. but for for the sake of brevity maybe what i meant Bru is brevity brevity brutality <laughs> yeah but we'll, we'll, i think we'll get into all that when we get to our production design episodes and we could talk because because i mean as listeners of our show know people like dr robin bunce who's you know just as much into brutalism as i am if not more. Oh, we're gonna have him on that show for this sure is, yeah we'll definitely have him on the show there, there's there is of course there is a long-storied architectural design tradition of brutalism that comes from Tom Brew, which is cement right which <laughs> comes from from Le Corbusier and all these other people that is a separate thing from the idea of brutal aesthetics but I think in in a lot of the work of Denis Villeneuve and, and uh, prisoners uh, not prisoners um, enemy and 2049 being among them there are actual brutalist aesthetics too in terms of concrete architecture and the walls headquarters and things so that is apropos and i think in toronto which i believe is where they shot enemy there is definitely some brutalist buildings that match that aesthetic quite um quite beautifully i agree with what you're saying jamie about enemy to me that that's the one that um felt the most like it was going to give a preview into what 2049 looked like um and arrival was obviously the last Denis movie that i'd seen in theaters before 2049 because that was the last one that was out but the movie that i saw leading up to it the most and still the one that i watched the most is right there behind me on the wall it's enemy it's like one of my favorite movies and i i really i think that like that is a film that i, I probably watched that 10 times in the year before 2049 came out that was a movie that i was just like addicted to for a little while um i had i had no reservations as soon as i knew that denis was attached to it i knew that this was going to be incredible because by that point i had ha i had been already totally indoctrinated in the cult of what he can do you know like i, I like we mentioned in our frame rate episode um, like I got on the on the Denny train in 2013, which is not as early as some other people in the francophone world. But you know, in terms of like English audiences, like he, I, I was lucky enough to kind of catch that wave and understand who he was and be like, oh, I need to figure out, I need to like watch this dude. So um, you know, I was already in the mindset where anytime he was in, a, I had a Google alert set up for a while for him. Anytime he was announced as being attached to something, I was like, oh fuck, I'm gonna check it out. I'm so excited, you know. So 2049, I, I was totally. By the time I knew it was him directing it totally on board before I knew it was him directing it. I was like, what are they doing? Why are they making this movie? Like, what is, what is this going to be? And then I, I realized who it actually was and I was very happy about it. Um, and Johan Johansson too, that I remember like, um, you know, hearing the, the, the temp music in this, in the trailer for it and being like, Oh my God, this is going to be so incredibly good because by that point, you know, I knew him really well from his collaborations with Denis. Um, and, and I just, I felt, I felt pretty confident. So I wouldn't say I was apprehensive about him vis-a-vis -vis the film. I was in general 
still nervous about something going wrong with the movie itself. But I did know that we were in good hands. And something that I want to talk about tonight in this episode in a, in a little bit is why, you know? I want to talk a little bit about why we were in good hands, it turned out, with Denis Villeneuve because of the ways that he makes movies and because of the sort of stories that he, that he tells. Um, I, and and I, I think that that's something that, like, now, I mean, look at the difference in the announcement of 2049 versus the difference in the announcement of Dune in terms of Denis being attached to it, right? When 2049 was announced, there was all this apprehension. Many, many, many people in my circles were like, who the fuck is this guy? Like, oh, this guy's at Arrival. Oh, okay, that was a good movie. Okay. There was a lot of that going on. By the time Dune was announced, you know, 35 years ago at this point, I remember, like, there was universal, like, oh my God, this is a brilliant idea. This is exactly who should take this forward, right? And Denny has that effect on filmgoers. He is somebody who, once you get it, you get it, you know? Um, and, and luckily for us, 2049 was in the, in the right hands. So I do hope we get some time tonight to talk about why and to talk about what elements of his style and his ability, as we've discussed in his previous films that you know, we've mentioned on the previous episode, um, fed into making 2049 this incredible document. Um, we are very lucky, I think, that he is now part of the Blade Runner legacy. But there's also still the uh, the real, very possibility that despite it being in good hands, it could have failed, really. I mean, there are, you know, you have people like uh, Christopher Nolan and other people saying, yeah, I saw it. He did it. He went ahead and made it. And you know that there's reservation. You know that they're trying to be as kind as possible because it didn't really resonate to them for whatever we'll get into that at another part, at another point. But I, you still, you just don't know if he was up to the task. And I think because there's just so much of us in the original, there's so much of who we are built into it. So it's like you've handed someone a baby and you better not fucking drop that baby. And I think we even had this discussion before early days when our, 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 um, this podcast started essentially you're handing someone a baby that essentially that's your own. And you're like, okay, take care of it. And he took care of it. But even for me, I wasn't in this place where I was like, even though I loved his other films, I was just skeptical. I was skeptical from the opening, um, up until Rachel 2.0 walked out, I was skeptical. Um, and of course he did it. And then I went and saw it four more times after that. Not that I was distrusting of him. I just wasn't sure. Um, and it's for me, it would be like, and Patrick and I have had this conversation, making another alien movie with Sigourney Weaver. I don't know. Even with a competent person, it might be done. Um, but it so worked. I think one way to, correct me if I'm wrong, but the, the feeling I get out of your feeling is that this was not necessarily based on questioning Villeneuve's competence. It's just that your nostalgia and the material to begin with is something that's difficult to follow up on. So it's not so much, I don't know if I trust Denis to deliver here. It's, I don't know if this original product can be expounded upon or delivered upon by anyone, right? Well, it's, not, it's not like when you compare him to Ridley Scott, like obviously there's a difference in age and experience and Ridley Scott's been around for a much longer time. But when you compare the two directors, as much as anyone can compare two very different directors, adjusting for age, I don't, now that I've watched most of Villeneuve's work, I don't get a sense of inferiority to Ridley Scott, right? No, like, I, I feel actually. like he's, I feel like he's a 
he's a parallel to him. Again, if you compare them by age, I'm not saying compare him to what Ridley Scott directs nowadays. I'm saying at that point in his career, I would say, yeah, they're experts of their craft who are interested in learning and want to get it right. They do have different styles. There's certainly similarities and differences between them. Um, right. But I think most of our apprehension came from the material. Not yeah. From the I mean, certainly it wasn't, I wasn't like, Oh, I don't know about his films. It wasn't so much. Yeah. I don't think he's a good or competent director for sure. It was more of, I don't know how you, you know, um, capture lightning in a bottle a second time i don't know if this is a possible thing to do i really don't i don't know how you approach material 32 years later was it 32 years later i think it came out or 35 years later i can't 36 oh boy 82 Uh, and 2017 35 years later later. okay um (laughs) it was 425 years later (laughs) 84 years later um jamie's jamie's like a greenland shark you know he thinks in very long (laughs) but you you just don't know oftentimes we've seen it we've seen it happen where material from all over the place they re-engage it 10 15 20 years later and it's like uh, no it just doesn't work but this did work and that was mostly my apprehension and i think deservedly so i think we all it was good to go in with that kind of apprehension i i have the same apprehension with dune and i'm not going into dune thinking this movie's going to be amazing you don't know like that is tough material it just is and i don't like to set myself up for failure um despite who denny is Yeah, I, I I think that's a good segue into uh, I get, I'll I'll shoot it to Patrick first, but I would say um, so. Moving on to what is it that you think Denis did so right, and what is it about how he approached the material and how he executed that you think is really what made this what we really consider a miracle? I think that's a great question. Uh, and and before I get quite to that, can we take just a moment? I, I think it's worth saying how too right? Because, because we haven't covered this. I don't think yeah, we covered yeah, this course. in the last episode. Maybe we did. But how we actually became a part of the project, just, which is a, a really quick story. It was Prisoners, which our recent frame rate was about. Um, he, that's how he got to know Andrew Kosov. It's how he got to know Alcon. And that was their previous working relationship. And then years passed, a number of films passed. And then they remembered him from that experience, remembered how gracious a director he was and how you know he was so... Uh, fascinating to work with. And I think uh, Alcon deserves a huge amount of credit for going, because it's not like this is the only thing they've ever produced. Like they've done a ton of work, right? And, and they, but they were still like, after, even after years went by, they're like, well, who was that French Canadian guy, you know, that did Prisoners that we loved? Like, I wonder what he's up to. Let's go find him. And they did. And they met in a secret location in New Mexico. I mean, literally a secret, I mean, it's a cafe, but they like didn't, you know, make a big deal about it in the press. They tried to kind of like avoid getting a lot of um, spotlight on it because, uh, you know, they didn't know if he would say yes. And also because it's such a, a precious property that they knew that if there were leaks about this, that it would, you know, get out there. People already knew that Alcon had the rights at that point that was already out there. People were kind of watching, you know, whom Alcon was meeting with to see if like this was going to be going anywhere. So I think if that meeting had happened in Hollywood, people would have been like, oh shit, you know, Denis Villeneuve is going to be directing this thing. And I think that they did a really wonderful job of keeping it at his pace because initially, of course, he, you know, turned it down at least somewhat because he was daunted by it, trying to direct something that's a follow-up to his favorite film of all time. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, we, we don't, I, I think we, I think we don't give Alcon quite enough credit for 
the enormous amount of risk taking that that entails to see talent like that that has not been part of the Hollywood mainstream. He hadn't done Arrival yet. You know, he hadn't broken through in any real mainstream way yet. And they said, you know, he's the guy that, to direct this. And you know that there are hundreds of, of directors of renown out there who would give their left nut to direct a Blade Runner movie. Like that is, that is one of those dream properties for people. I'm, I'm sure it's terrifying, but like that it is, it is one of the most storied directing opportunities ever, right? This film that was this legend that never got a sequel made that everybody wanted to see if that would ever yeah, happen, like, right? You know you're going to go down in history. It's either going right. to be a disaster. You will be a part or, of filmmaking history or a miracle, but you are definitely going down in history. Right, and and for them to do what they did, just like Fox did when they hired Ridley Scott for Alien, right? Like, I mean, it, Ridley Scott was even less proven because he'd only done one feature film. At least Denis had done a number of them, but um, he was still a huge risk to take. So. Uh, that, you know, so now we've kind of covered that. I, I, coming back around to what elements of his style um, or what things we've seen in other films of his that we've discussed so far that make 2049 into the great film that it is. And I, and I do mean great with a capital G, as I'm, I know you guys do too. Um, I think one of them that we've discussed a number of times is the deliberate, unhurried pacing of it and what that has as an effect on the unfolding of a story. Because when you don't rush things, you don't rush the audience to feel like they have to be clever or to feel like they have to be, you know, on top of every detail that's happening. You give them the liberty to sink into something, right? Like Jamie loves the word cerebral, right? Like that, that, that is what leads to a cerebral film, right? Is, is it kind of ironically, it's a film you don't have to think too much about, you know, to enjoy. It's a film you can kind of just like sit inside and envelop yourself in and allow deeper thinking to occur right? Allow deeper transformations internally to happen. Uh, and Denis has done that in every single film that he has touched that I've seen, which is all of them, but two at this point, I think. Um, his movies are marked by a totally unhurried atmosphere where he doesn't feel like he's trying to prove anything. He doesn't feel like he's trying to get everybody excited. He's not trying to get everybody up off their feet, you know, trying to get your adrenaline going. He's allowing these things to happen slowly and organically so that when these big moments do happen, when these big set pieces do erupt, when they are chasing spinners across, you know, Sepulveda, the, the wall, like, like they are burned because it's not the point of the movie. The point of the movie is this gradual character transformation that we feel on an intuitive level because we've been given the breathing room to listen to our intuitive selves. So to me, the, the first thing I would say is the deliberate pacing and the graciousness that with which he treats his audience. I, what I think something that I feel like is really important in the original Blade Runner are those moments, Deckard's moments in his apartment, his moments out on his balcony, looking over at the city. There's a lot of moments that in the beginning when the camera's panning in slowly, slowly, slowly into Type Rail's building, and you see um, uh, the other Blade Runner, what's his name? At the, the conference first... table with Leon? Yeah, yeah. Holden? Holden. Holden yeah. Holden. Okay. So you see that long, long pan in that long, the camera's just tracking in and tracking in, tracking in. And I just love the patience of that. I love the way Ridley Scott lets those characters in those moments breathe. That's all over the original film, whether it's the moment where Rachel is just walking around in his apartment. The reality is those shots would be edited out today for length, for all sorts of reasons. Denis knew that was part of the magic of the original. 
were those moments so we can get lost in this world in this atmosphere and you saw those moments in 2049 and almost expanded upon like they were way longer the moment where k is at the the um the fire pit whatever the the, the whatever that thing is called i can never get my words right when the fire I'm, pit what do you mean <laughs> is that the, the bonfire no whatever that thing is called the forge the, like the the big the in the in the bottom of the orphanage like the yeah the, it's not a forge though it's called a Furnace. Furnace. There furnace. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it is much late. We don't usually record this late, listeners. This is we are this is our second episode tonight. These, and it these is people talk seven. for a living, folks. Just <laughs> <laughs> the fire pit. But that scene, like I know uh Ridley was even talking about it in some of the minor criticism of twenty forty nine. He's like, Oh, it's too long. I would have cut twenty minutes out of that and you know he was talking about one of those scenes. But really that's what makes the film as great as it is that the opening scene where he's asleep and you see his hand and he's just going in and that all that, I mean, definitely it's a homage to the original, but that's some time that you take to really, you're in the spinner with him as he's going wherever he's going. Cause we don't know. And then he knew that that was an important component to have in this, in this film. And we're not spared that at all. There are, I mean, even towards the end when Deckard is at Wallace's, there's, moments of just the lights moving and things changing or there's 40 seconds between discussion or conversation when other directors probably even Ridley Scott would be like let's cut it let's cut it let's keep moving let's keep moving and that's one of the reasons why 2049 is so great obviously it's everything working together as the whole but those moments for me make the film that's why i watch movies so that i can feel like i can live and breathe in an environment and it's just in spades even though it's a different environment and it's not as welcoming and it's not as nostalgic it still feels immersive which i think is so important and you nailed it and and as as dan mentioned uh on our frame rate uh, I actually don't remember what you meant. Uh, again, it's later than we usually record this. But my my point is that Joe Joe Walker deserves. To, oh, yeah, I remember what you were saying. You were saying how a director is sort of like a choir master, right? Like like you know they might not be doing every single thing, but they do have a direct hand in how it's coming through, and they are directing all these different things together, right? So so the film is not edited by Denis Villeneuve, right? The film is edited by Joe Walker, who's brilliant. But um, but Denis was sitting with Joe Walker while he was editing it and was there making a lot of executive decisions on this. And so, but yeah. I think to your point, actually, you guys covered the timing, which I was also going to bring up. So I won't cover that again. Um, but, you know, the atmosphere, letting it breathe. So obviously a film is a product of many, many professionals working together. And Villeneuve has shown that he has a lot of strength in the leadership position that a good director has of bringing the talent together. I mean, yeah, with the help of obviously casting and the production company, et cetera. But he really gives all that trust, right, to the professionals that he's working with. And I think to that point, um, just like Joe Walker doing the editing and just like um, Dennis Gassner doing the production design, like certainly you have a level of innate talent there that if it was a different person, you would have a different movie. Now, I'm not saying it would be better or worse, but if you replace, start replacing those chess pieces, so to speak, you start to end up with a different product. I think the best example of that that's the most obvious is Roger Deakins. I'll say it again. I say it for other Villeneuve films. Um, when it's Deakins and Villeneuve together, 
there's some kind of special magic that gets sprinkled on things that I think. And so just in how he works with the editor, right? Villeneuve works closely with the editor, even though that's not his work, but he's supervising essentially. Um, now Deacons is a lot older and has more experience than Villeneuve. I mean, for God's sake, he shot 1984, right? He's been around for a long time. Um, but the trust and the relationship between those two professionals and those two artists really creates something exceptional. And I think because it's such a visual part of the film, right? The, the cinematographer, that's one of the most striking examples to me of this perfect symbiosis of being able to create a piece of art that would absolutely look completely different with someone with a different cinematographer. Um, I think it's a huge part of it. And you know, and not, of course, the other cinematographers, Denny, his work with are great as well. But if he went into a project, which I'm sure they did for Doom, but it just scheduling wise, it wasn't possible for Deacons to shoot that. I could see him in the future being like, yeah, we're a package. The same way Deacons and his wife are a package. She does a lot of script supervising where she's the like, wolf, no, you gotta take pictures. I mean, but it, it makes sense. You know what I mean? Like, I'm, I'm not saying he's going to do that, but like. I'm just I'm picturing him being like, yo, man, we roll together. You want one <laughs> of us, you're going to get us both. Um, Denis and Roger, we go deep. <laughs> they God. do, though. They are a, a pair Matching made in tattoos. heaven. <laughs> yeah, right? Yeah, they no. They really are incredible together. They really are. I, I agree. And, and those films they do together have a special feel. So I think that um, a lot of credit can be can be given to that combination of the two of them um and so namely in describing something that they're obviously an integral part of in terms of the atmosphere and the slowness in the breathing room i think they're the main reason why the film was so good and again i'm not trying to overlook things like hampton fancher was you know co-wrote the script like obviously he's a huge part of this and ridley scott helped produce and you know harrison ford plays his part so like again integral pieces Roger Deakins really deserves a lot of the credit for that, for translating the director's vision um, and working with him so well with the lighting and the visuals. I mean, just that rig, right, that Deakins helped create for the Wallace interrogation scene is just like, it's just brilliant, you know? Yes, I would agree to everything that you're saying. I think what I'm trying to be specific is about is, and Denis actually said this in a behind-the-scenes interview he did that's on the 4K of 2049. He was saying, you know, I had to keep pulling my crew away from repeating what they've done before. He said, that's, that's, he says, I encounter that all the time with people who are working on projects that, that are, invo you know, related to other projects, whatever. They just want to go back and they want to repeat something that they haven't seen before. He said, I had to pull them time and time again, say, no, let's not do that. Let's not do something that you'd seen before. And I think it's important to understand that the film might look different with a different director. It might, aesthetically in terms of lighting but what's key is knowing why the original Blade Runner film worked and not obviously repeating it but there are there are beats in 2049 that reflect beats in 2019 without them actually retreading old ground um, and they feel like um, bookends to each other because the the beats are similar the pacing is similar even though the aesthetics are in many ways wildly different but at the same time which which we'll get into at some point i know that um there's been people who are crit have criticized 2049 as well it wasn't you know it wasn't the blade runner future that i 
remember when in fact there is so much of the original vision that Ridley Scott produced in 2049 whether it's in the rooftop or in the food court or other scenes where it he's recreating things that we've seen before um, but he just knew what notes to play and that's really key for me like there's a lot of, and we've talked about this before there's a lot of great films that look beautiful that are shit or that are problematic or they're like oh, okay like for instance I said this in our earlier episode um, Project Power on Netflix just because that's the last film that I've seen um, or I can I mean I could even name other films where it looked like it's like flash. 70% of stuff Jamie Watts. or bright or whatever um, <laughs> yeah oh garbage garbage putrescence um, <laughs> but, uh, but the films are flashy and they're well produced and they're slick and they're highly problematic. I don't films don't films these days don't have problem a problem looking good. They have a problem being good, and that's that is uh, a director or a uh, the person who does the orchestra a conductor. Like you have to know what you're doing, and especially when it comes to uh, a pre existing IP that is like the cup of Christ to film to fandom, um, and it, it it really I don't know I don't. And we've discussed this before. I don't want to get too far into this because we're discussing Villeneuve in 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 context to him being on twenty forty nine. But Ridley Scott could not have made the film that he made. I don't know if Ridley Scott, if he would have made twenty forty nine, if it would have been as good. That's just the reality. Um, and th- it was it was a miracle. It was a miracle that everything. And then you have Alcon, who was like, "Well, we're not going to give you a final cut, but we really trust you." And then they gave him final cut. Um, which was, again, a little bit unheard of in Hollywood. I mean, in the end, it's not a process that these people are emulating or a specific technique or a certain style. It's the end feeling that you're left with after you've submerged yourself in this film that is a parallel feeling to how you felt being submerged in the first film. And I think that's the formula they were able to figure out but there's no formula for that, right? You're just kind of going with the process. And I would imagine that it took a while if there was ever a point in production where Denis walked on set based on all the stuff they'd filmed so far and was like, man, we're nailing this. This is going to be successful. It's going to look really great. And it's like really going to feel like Blade Runner. Like, I don't think you know that, right? You've got, I mean, four hours in the initial cut, who knows how much more footage, right? And there's no music initially. Uh, I think Denis famously does not use, um, what do you call it? Like interim scores. He doesn't, he edits temp the film. Scores. Yeah, he doesn't use temp scores. So I, his I first- they're also called fire pits. <laughs> <laughs> so- his the first edit he sees is usually without music and so um yeah he's really just adding the layers to that famous layer cake that ridley described until the end product feels right and i think that's part of what they were successful with is ending up with that thing in the end that is achieved through intangible means right i mean there are certain formulas you can follow right like ridley scott famously says like in science fiction create whatever world you want to create but don't break your own rules whatever rules you make you have to stick to the rules of that world so there's like certain things right in storytelling and script writing and in shooting scenes and whatever 
um, that you stick to, but there's something else, right? There's something intangible there that they were able to attain. And I think that's what, for those of us who love 2049, especially if we love it as much or parallel to, or more than the original film, which some fans do, um, I think that's what we're left with. It's the taste that it leaves in your mouth. You know, that's kind of like the essence of it, I think. And I think the way that Denis gets to that point is the next thing that I want to talk about, which is personnel management. So a really easy to overlook aspect of directing a film is like the simple matter of getting the best out of your people, right? The people that are attached to it. There's many ways to do that. There's the Ridley Scott School and the James Cameron School, which is basically to like have a lot of reverence for the technical side of the thing and kind of let everybody else just do what they're doing, right? There's the Stanley Kubrick School, which is like basically being a fascist, um, but a really talented one. Uh, and then there's the school of like, you know, Michael Bay and Brian Singer and those, those kinds of people who are very commercial and they like are kind of really pros at navigating the film business and they just sort of like make a movie and it and they're goes dicks. and makes money and they're, and they're just sort of like, well, I mean, especially in Brian Singer's case, he's a horrible person, but, um, but you know, but there's, there's, there's that. But then there are, are, are some directors and there's like not that many of them that I can think of, like at least that are famous. I mean, there's, there, there are people like, you know, Michael Doherty, you know, there's, there's other people out there who people really enjoy working with a lot. Steven Spielberg is somebody like that. Um, but, but Denis Villeneuve to me is the epitome of a director who is a team lead on something. A director who like has great people management skills a director who cares a lot about the people that he works with and engenders a lot of trust with those people. And in doing so, gets a lot long-term out of those working relationships. If you look at the personnel attached to 2049, so many of them are people who have worked with Denis multiple times in multiple films through the years. And not even just since Hollywood, since before that, since he was in Canadian cinema exclusively. I mean, you look at a lot yeah. of the surnames attached to this and they're, they're French Canadian surnames. He has been with these people for a long time. Oh yeah. When you see behind the scenes stuff where you see Denis working with his crews or he's being interviewed about working with his crews or someone he works with is telling you something about Denis, the feeling you're left with is always like, man, I want a boss like that. You know exactly. I mean? like, just right. It's like this amazing experience where he's able to really it's the essence of actual leadership, right? Leadership is the art of getting people to do in the military. They would say getting people to do what they don't want to do, but I would expand <laughs> upon that and say that leadership is the art of uniting people for a common cause. Right. And Denise seems to be really, really good at that in a very genuine way. You really believe that his heart's in the right place and that he respects your artistry at whatever level you're at, whether you're from a model maker to the actual cinematographer, you can tell that he respects people's talent and skill um, and experience and is just guiding them towards creating this vision and like, man, I just, I mean, when I see that process, I'm like, I, can I come sweep the floor? I just want to be like a part of that process. You know, it's like really attractive. And you know, well, you would leave that sweeping the best floor sweeper in the history of it because you would have been believed oh, in the whole time, yeah, right? Yeah, oh, you I should do that, dude. You should go that sweep floor. his floors. <laughs> go sweep those fucking floors. I'm making the, I'm making the pasta. <laughs> well, I think what you guys are both saying is something I picked up on is this man seems to have very little ego. Uh, in a in a in an environment in, in an industry that's full of ego, really, and some of those ego, you know, David O. Russell, who who has directed like <laughs> it's a fucking mess. 
Yeah, he is. And he's directed some really great films at the cost of of him getting into fistfights, people suing him uh, for his how abusive he has been. And or, you know, you see variations on that theme. You see people who are verbally abusive. People are just dicks. People who, you know, recently, you know, Joss Whedon's all the talk in terms of the way he treated people on set, uh, locking Gal Gadot in her in her um, trailer until she could come out and do more suggestive scene calling uh the guy who played cyborg the n-word i mean there's a gambit of of and a a history behind the way directors treat their talent and the people behind the scenes whether it's the dp or the art director or so on and so forth and something i picked up with denine we've talked about this briefly before about how humble this man is uh, and I really think that that it serves him and it serves his films. I think that's one of the reasons why his films are so good because he knows that his humility is going to take him way further than um, not being humble and being like, I know what I'm doing. Um, and he's even said, yeah, there's a couple times where I thought, hey, maybe I arrived and I sort of had to be knocked down a little bit and understand what... Um, informs his creativity uh these uh uh christopher nolan's sim different but he's similar where if you've seen him and you've heard people talk about him he's known for being very very kind um steven spielberg known for being very kind very gracious he doesn't yell he doesn't scream he doesn't want to be around on sets with people like that so people know and i think like denis you have people following him because they hey i want to work with this guy again because it feels like we're a family i'm being treated as a human and i really really truly believe that's why his films are successful that's why 2049 feels the way it does it's accessible because he's accessible and i oftentimes think i don't know of a film I don't think I don't I'm trying to think of a film where I'm like, oh, my God, that film's amazing. But maybe the the filmmaker's a dick or the director's been a, an asshole. I don't really to me, they're connected. I don't, most of the time you see films that are flashy and they might make a lot of money and but they're not very good. And I'm not saying that those things are. are I mean, Kubrick could be considered a dick in some ways. True. He certainly wore his actors True. out. And, uh, I don't think and, some, I think he was actually abusive and horrible. I, I think he was yeah, a, I, I don't a, know too a much nightmare about Kubrick. of a person, but I think yeah. his films, but his films are obviously... Made. And people yeah. would jump aboard them knowing, hey, it's Stanley Kubrick. I mean, even um, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise when they were married, I think they knew what they were getting involved with, and they did like 50 or 60 takes off whatever relative but, scenes. But they also hated the process and described it that way, yet later on reflection would say, but he got the best work out of yeah. of my career out of me. Which is so interesting because I always have ethical issues with that. Like, if you're not treating people well, I don't give a shit if you, that looks good at the end. It's for nothing if you didn't treat your people well during the process. Like, I, I don't believe in, like, art, like something... I think art is definitely obviously significant because here we are and it's powerful. It's a very powerful tool, but not at the expense of human dignity, not at the expense of, of treating people like garbage. Like if 2049 would have been great, but all of a sudden we had, you know, a, a, a trail of people saying, yeah, we, we went home crying. They were, you know, I would be like, Oh, I don't, I, I it would change the way I view the art. And again, I mean, Blade Runner was like that, right? No, but very difficult it, film. It set. was difficult, but from what I, obviously we've all read the same thing. I've never read where, except for that one tiff that maybe he got into with, 
with Harrison Ford, which Harrison Ford has denied, actually, and Ridley Scott has denied. I've never read anything where Ridley Scott was being verbally abusive or an asshole. He was under tight stress. That's what I hear. I hear people say he was under stress. The studio was in there. They kept telling him to do this. They kept telling him to do that. Everything would change, and he have to adapt oh. to that change. And so that's what they were seeing, as opposed to other people who had worked with Ridley Scott saying, "Oh no, it was fine." You know? I'll I'll certainly agree and buy into the fact that Ridley Scott, as far as I know, has not been reported to be gratuitously a dick because that is his default style of leadership. That I'll agree with. Like one could argue that Sean Young's point of view is she went home for a month after the love scene, which is obviously a combination of factors, but really Scott's still in charge. He's still whispering into Ford's ear certain things and he still wants the actors to act a certain way. Now, maybe that's not overtly being a dick the way someone could be calling names or being verbally abusive to their actors, but it's up to certainly the people who are there and people's interpretation, whether he's a nice guy, whatever. So yeah, sometimes the end justifies the means within reason. Obviously I agree with you. No one should be a bully or abusive like that. Um, but you know, I, I, while you guys were talking, it kind of made me think more about, okay, what else we're talking about pretty somewhat intangible things and talking about leadership, which is notoriously difficult to write about and difficult to explain to people. Right. It's a very specific skill set. I was thinking about, I don't want to uh, leave any credit off the table with Villeneuve in that I think that he was very bold and risky in the way he did 2049 as well. He really went for certain things. And I was going to ask you, because I think you guys can probably come up with examples of it. I was going to ask you, I, I have a few examples, but I'll just list one. And if you guys don't bring it up, I'll throw it in. But um examples of when Villeneuve was kind of being bold or risky or, or really putting it out there. And I would say um, new tech that they created for this film. I think of Stellene's sort of, um, I, it has a name, but it's based on a, DS, on a DSLR camera, right? It's that sort of contraption where she's adjusting the size of the uh, beetle out in the forest right and the head's changing it's and it's very subtle even that scene is cool because you're like wait what's happening are you like oh the eyes are changing size you know like it's that subtle scene um or the technology with which she's doing the cake and um creating the memory of that cake the way they lit that the way they did that right like that's sort of new technology or a new idea uh, sorry i mean new technology in the story the way they did the spinners was interesting. You know, I talk about that with uh, Territory Studios when I interviewed the creative lead there, um, Peter, I think was his name, but you can go back and listen to that episode and the way they incorporated the blackout background story into the technology that they're using in that mix of analog and digital. So um, yeah, I wanted to ask you guys like what kind of things do you feel specifically that Villeneuve was bold about or that was uh, courageous or risky about? Do you want to go first, Patrick? Or <laughs> he's tired. Um, you'll see the no, 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 no. I, I, uh, no, I, I, I'd love to hear what you say. I'm sitting down just because I've been standing for three hours. That's fine. <laughs> you, you go. Well, I was like, yo, Patrick hates this point. <laughs> he hates this fucking episode. Um, I would say there was a lot that he was bold with. I think he was number one is the aesthetic texture. It was a very cool film. It was a very, it, there are of course moments where he was 
reimagining or reproducing some of the textural aesthetics of 2019. You saw it in the food court. You saw it on um, the rooftop as he was walking home. That felt like we're back in the world that we we um, we know and love so much. But most of the time, he wasn't showing us that. He was showing us cold, hard surfaces. Not darkness, but light. A lot of it was in the light. A lot of it was in the daytime. Um, and showing us Gaff again in a different context, I think that was very risky because we know what Gaff looks like. We know how he sounds, and Gaff sounded different. He looked different. Deckard looked different. Deckard looked completely foreign to his environment. I think he took some major, major risks. In fact, one of our friends, who I shall not name, had a really hard time with how Deckard was portrayed. Uh, you guys know who I'm talking about. Um, and I think that was just a really big risk to take, to take characters and say, I'm going to, I mean, oh, well, I want to make a comparison, but I won't because I'm going to make Patrick angry. But <laughs> as I see his head shaking the top of his head. Uh, but I think he took some really bold risks in terms of characters that we love and where they were placed. I think it was a bold risk, even though it wasn't a story that he wrote, he had involvement in. It was a risk to kill off Rachel. It just was. They are a legacy couple. Why wouldn't you have her? When I found out she wasn't going to be in the whole film, I was devastated because I feel like by the end of the original, she was as much a part of the legacy of Blade Runner as Deckard was. Not that it was his decision, but he could inform that. He could probably say, hey, let's maybe do this. But they didn't do that and they got rid of her. That was bold. It's bold to step into a story where you're like, okay, everything is different. The world has changed. There's been a blackout. Um, everything feels different. Things have gotten worse. And I need to make a world that doesn't seem like the original world from the, uh, it's, And uh, that was a huge gamble. But the tone was right. So it didn't matter. Yeah, to, to me, the, the biggest thing, and this is kind of related to what you're saying, is just the complete dispatching of iconography from the original film. Because if there is one aesthetically memorable film made in the second half of the 20th century, it's Blade Runner, right? Like that, the, it, is, it is a film that has defined cyberpunk, you know, aesthetics and other aesthetics for the last 35 years. It's a, it's a film that is full of like really genuinely iconic imagery. Um, and what I love about 2049 is that it, you know, opens in a bright environment it opens with a you know rural scene at a farm um it you know the, the the little glimpses that we have of the aesthetics from the original film are usually shot in this film are shot from above primarily so we don't even really get down and dirty into them it is a movie that is not beholden to the visual look of the original film and, and i think that that's like crazy risky uh because i think and, and it also shows just a way deeper understanding of this movie than so many other filmmakers would have had, you know, something that always pisses me off. This, this will be related at some point. It is 11 o'clock. So it might take a while to get there. Um, something that a lot of people do that pisses me off is when they, when you find out that, that like filmmakers are casting a movie that's starring like a younger version of like an actor who has aged, like for example, in solo, right. There's all this uproar where people are like, Oh, but like this is, you know, this person does such a good impression. Why can't he do it? Or like this person like looks just like this person as a young actor. Like, why can't they do that? And I'm always like, cause it's not the fucking point. Like the point isn't just to look the same. The point is to like inhabit something deeper about the story. Right. And what I love about 2049 is that it is not an impression of the first movie at all. The glimpses we have of that first film are earned in 2049 and are not easy to find. Right. 
if it had opened in the dingy streets with the rain falling and neon signs and people eating noodles and shit, fans would have loved the beginning of it, right? And then we would have all said, like, wait a minute, like, this feels like fan service. I think we're watching fan service. And there are some franchises that I think can get away with that because they're comfort food. But Blade Runner is not that kind of a franchise, right? Um, the Blade Runner no is matter how some fans, No matter how much some fans wanted it to be. Yeah, right? It, it, it is the antithesis of comfort food. Um, and if it were comfortable, then it would be doing a complete disservice to the story. So I, I love how Denis, from the very beginning, just eschewed all of these uh, things that would have been so obvious, you know, like seeing Deckard in a trench coat again, or just these, these things that, you know, uh, it, and, you know, another reason why I think that works really well is because when we do see actual verbatim glimpses of the first movie, like in the Rachel flashbacks, for example, they look anachronistic they look like in a past they look like something that has been moved from just like in today's world when we see home videos of ourselves 30 years ago or when jamie sees them from 75 years ago of his childhood you know we're seeing <laughs> things that look they look really old right they look like a time that is gone that is we're never getting back to in like, a lot man, of movies he had that even, newsboy hat way back then <laughs> he did the same exact haircut same hat same fashion. Um, we, uh, you know, we, we, we see these things that uh, are, it's important because in a lot of movies that have temporal continuity, right, they, they signal that continuity with things like different technology, right? They signal it with things like characters having different dialects or something like that, but they very rarely uh, signal it by showing how much things can change in a few decades in very deep ways. And the ways that the society in 2049 operates are, is very different from the ways in 2019, right? It's a lot less claustrophobic. It's a lot, there's just fewer people. It's a lot less sort of glitzy and a lot less dirty and a lot more abandoned and desiccated. And, uh, and, and that was because in the very beginning of this entire process, he and Roger Deakins and other people sat down and they said, this is going to look a different way and the first way it's going to look different is it's going to be a bright film. It's going to be a film that is fundamentally full of sunlight, but sunlight seen through a veil of clouds. And that was a creative decision that I, I, I can say personally, I would never have come to that point. If I were given the, the keys to Blade Runner, for one thing, the franchise would be doomed, but also because I've never directed anything before. But also, I would never in a million years have come with this aesthetic vision of like, let's do a bright, shiny, sunshine movie with clouds in it. Like, it's crazy. But the story called for it, and he had the audacity as a filmmaker to say, let's follow this and see what we can get out of it and do something brave. You guys pretty much covered the other things that I'd noticed in the film. I'm going to throw a, a small item in there to follow up on Patrick's grandiose, uh, I don't know what word I'm looking for there. Um, but the threesome scene I thought was... The fire pit is the word, I think, Dan. Fire, <laughs> fire pit. Verisimilitude. Cerebral. Cerebral. Um, yeah, I think the uh, threesome is a good example of a scene that like didn't need to be in the movie was kind of risky because you're taught, you know, again, there's a controversial love scene in the first film here. You're sort of, I think it's more risky in real life than it is for the film. Meaning in real life, you're risking, am I going to look like I'm just trying to put two pretty actresses on screen and make some gratuitous like oh cool they're making out and they're both hot girls you know blah, blah blah like and it doesn't have any of that feel right it's very emotionally poignant um and 
elevates a concept that, again, we mentioned before, it's kind of funny, but Ghost, the film with Patrick Swayze has, uh, and Demi Moore has this, um, a scene in, in it like this, right? Where you're blending two people together and they're having intimacy with someone else. And um, I think it's just done so tastefully and so well and the way they mix the filming technology to make it look kind of glitchy but also beautiful and you kind of take can't take your eyes off just the scene itself not you know the the people in it necessarily but just the way they did it uh, was really incredible and i think that that's a scene they could have easily screwed up or they could have aged not very well and i think it's actually going to go down uh, as one of the most beautiful and well done I hesitate to even call it a love scene because of the complicated context of it, but scene of intimacy where you're really feeling what the characters are feeling, you know, um, that was a bold move. And it was a bold move that scene specifically. I just wanted to touch on it because that scene could have, it would have been cut and could have been cut by people or a, a less adept director who didn't understand what that scene was really about. And really it's about connection. That's how deeply joy wanted to connect with him and essentially how deeply he wanted to connect with joy. I mean, you saw him on the rooftop trying to hug this digital thing that he can't hug that he can pretend to, and he couldn't. It was like, Lady Hawk always together eternally apart you know like they were together but they could never touch and that moment I think is beautiful and powerful because it's the moment we all crave for it's actual connection connection beyond the digital veil which is where a lot of us live these days um, even po pre-pandemic um, that's where the world has go is going and probably for someone like Kay, he's not programmed to find a, a girlfriend that's not why he's there that where he lives is you know this little box where i'm sure it's probably paid for by, by the police or the money he gets from the police like he is there for a purpose he's not there for a girlfriend and if he is it's joy that's it so he's dying for connection he's dying for human connection and that moment is the, the the culmination of that yearning and it's so important that film wouldn't be as good without that without it but in less capable hands people would have been like okay let's just see 20 seconds of that and then let's move on um so also really because it's just don't go, go ahead no well, i was just gonna say i really feel like it's entirely important and denny knew why it was important and the why is so important it, it it's just it's the the why is penultimate of importance to me. There's a lot of movies that we see and we're like, well, why was that there? That doesn't even make any sense. We see that all the time in movies. And you uh, directors have to understand the, the material. And he understood fundamentally the material he had in his hands. And you can tell because that scene is shot like totally devoid of the male gaze that makes things so much cheaper, right? That's it's that actually a female shot. gaze. It uh, is. And it's, and it's shot really, it's focused on joy in that moment and how important this is for her. Mm -hmm. This is not Kay getting laid by two hot chicks, right? This is about, and even Kay is apprehensive and, and feels like this might not be a great idea, even though he, you know, loves the, the, the idea behind it. He's not getting off on this idea of having this like weird threesome. Like this is, this is about connection and it's shot 
prioritizing joy. It's showing her trying to sync up. It's showing her saying that this is what she wants. And it's very respectful of what this means to her, I think. Um, and so it doesn't feel gratuitous and it doesn't feel ridiculous. And that's something that Denis does in so many movies, like we keep talking about, and like we will continue to talk about. And, and Al-Sandi is a great example of a film like this. There are so many things in Al-Sandi that could be totally, I mean, they are shocking, but they could be uh, kind of ridiculous. Right, there are things in a lot of his films that really could be really, really gratuitous, and 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 even in Prisoners, right, a movie that is extremely violent and things, it could have been a lot worse than it. They could have shown a lot more of the violence than they did. What what Denis does that is so great, I think, is he understands the reasons behind showing certain things and the reasons behind not showing certain things, and he does a very intelligent job of showing things for the right reasons and not showing them for shock value, not showing them for titillation, not showing them to get, you know, young boys excited about threesomes. Like he's showing these things because they are parts of the human experience that you can't really show, that you can't really, that you actually should show because they are real, not because they are an affect or an affectation because they're real. And that scene is a, a somewhat of an inverse of the 2019 scene where Rachel's We've discussed this ad nauseum, of course. Essentially, this damsel who doesn't really know what's going on, and Kay is similar. She's like, "Hey, I'm. She's here because I brought her here, and this thing's about to go down." And Kay's like, "Okay." Kay's sort of the unwitting participant in this. He is similar to Rachel in that moment, but there's not a power struggle, and he's not. He's not. He knows who he is, which is you know, very, very different. But it, it, it to me, I, I've read that scene as an inverse on its Denise response to that scene. It's I'm going to make something beautiful because it's beautiful um, in the strangest way possible. And also look at the way it's scored. That's something else that's important. Yes, that moment, love this. Yes. Right? So, so in, in, the, in, the, in the sort of equivalent inverse scene in 2019, of course, it's scored with this like kind of ridiculous adult contemporary sax solo, right? Which I do still love that track, but it is like a little bit, you know, it's it's a little much. Um, and in twenty in twenty forty nine, it's it's barely scored at all, and the music is not, uh, it's not like romantic, and it's not any one thing. It's sort of like it's like the music of experience passing. And then, of course, when the camera pans away and looks outside, and you see spinners flying past billboards again. It's it's ominous. It's dark. It's churning. And the music in that scene, I think, is so interesting because it's like everything else in this film and like everything else that Denny touches, it's, it's not just one thing, you know? I mean, he mentioned, obviously, Johansson was not the person who ended up scoring this, but he mentioned that he was attracted to Johansson for prisoners because uh, he found something sacred in his music, that when he listened to it, it didn't feel like he was listening to film music. It, it listened, it felt like he was listening to the expression of something sacred. Um, and so even though, of course, this is Walfish and Zimmer, who did an extraordinary job with the score to 2049, there is something sacred to that music as well. And, you know, something sacred is something you can't see. It's something you can't quite understand. It's something past that, right? So the music in that sequence, just like the music in much of the movie, is music that is hard to pin down as any one thing at any given time. And that is why that scene can be interpreted many different ways. Of course, some ways in popular press that it's interpreted is as this like chauvinistic thing. Like a lot of people think that there are real issues with um, you know anti-feminism in this movie. I think that those people are reading the movie completely inaccurately and, and whatever else. 
Um, but I think that, you know, I can see why it's because the, this is shot open-ended so that you sort of see into it what you're looking for, or you see into it what you take from it. And that is a great example of a scene that is open-ended like nobody else could really film it. I think, I, I think that's one of his great gifts. So I think, um, you know, obviously we're going to continue talking about Denis throughout the entirety of the series because he is the, you know, it may be the primary driving force behind the film that we ultimately got. But I'm glad that we took time over these last two episodes to break down who he is as a filmmaker enough to the point where I think going forward, we can continue to reference these things. And of course, our ongoing Patreon series, which Dan will get to in a, in a moment, um, will be a, an ongoing opportunity to explore him as a filmmaker and to explore what he brought to this movie. So we could go on and on for hours about this, but I think this is probably a good place to wrap. And Dan, if you want to close us with a little bit of Patreon love. Yeah. So um, if you've been interested in this conversation, this ongoing conversation we've been having about Villeneuve, obviously the scope of this show is to talk about it relative to 2049. And we talked about the road to him getting there. Um, but we decided that it, this was a good time to use our um, frame rate show that we um, put out on Patreon to explore most of Denise films, at least the ones, the more famous ones are the ones we can get our hands on. So starting with Prisoners, we're going to do a filmmaker series, essentially, where uh, we're still putting out two episodes of frame rate per month. Um, first episode is going to be a Denis film. And the second episode is going to be unrelated for the next few months until we get through his main six to eight films. Um, and so we're starting with Prisoners. So if you want to hear more on this discussion of uh, Villeneuve and Deakins and all the other um, professionals he works with all the time, go to uh, bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support or perfectorganism.com forward slash support. And you can sign up for our Patreon. Two bucks a month is all it costs to get you into this program. We were giving out a few episodes for free recently due to the pandemic, but uh, they're going back behind the paywall. So it's pretty affordable. A cup of coffee a month is all it takes. It really helps us out a lot, allows us to continue to produce audio dramas and upgrade our equipment and hopefully continue to always put out better quality products for you guys. Um, and there's a whole community on Patreon that engages us and we have uh, private discussions there uh, about the films, about what people thought about um, our discussion or about the film in general. So join us and help us out and join our Patreon and um, we will see you guys soon. And also, lastly, we have a discussion group called Fields of Calantha on Facebook. It's got about a thousand people in it right now. It's just a great place for us to gather and talk about the show, talk about Blade Runner, talk about uh, quite a few things. So please join us there if you'd like. Um, we also have an official Facebook page as well. Um, we're we're going to be changing some of our perks via Patreon. We've been talking about it. Maybe give a poster away for a higher tier. tier. You can, uh, But we're going to we will fill you guys in on what that will be in the coming weeks and months. Thank you again for, for listening. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.